Well, imagine you're walking to Cosentino's Market, downtown, and uh, you see this guy, he's starting to draw this crowd. And no, he's not panhandling, and you, you know a little bit here and there uh, about him from some of the gossip channels or some, some Facebook, you know, conversations across the pages. And you ask someone in the crowd, you say, you know, tell me a little bit more about this guy. Oh, he's from a small town called Nazareth, you know. Well, what's his name? And they almost seem to whisper it with reverence when they would mention it. You know, oh, his name is Jesus. So you figure, you know, the TP and the veggies can wait a little bit um, before you get to Costantino. So you, you figure you'll stop and take a listen. And while you're there, you notice um, some of the biggest uh, name Bible teachers are in town. And they're in this crowd. Um, they're there to listen. You know, folks with prestige like a Tim Keller or a you know, Tony Evans or a Billy Graham and others are in this crowd peppered around and they're listening. But they're not just listening to learn. They're kind of like a school teacher grading a paper or looking for corrections to be made. They, they, they're like the science high school lab where they're dissecting every sentence, putting every idea under the microscope. And then they're crossing their arms, asking the question, what's this guy really saying? How is he manipulating the crowd to be here with him today? But even though you, you see these great and bold leaders standing in skepticism, you can't help but be drawn in by this teacher. Something about his warmth. He's different than these other teachers who have peppered throughout the crowd. They were called Pharisees back then. And there was something astounding about his insight, as though he knew the very aches of your heart. There was something warm about his teaching that was compassionate, but also absolutely brilliant. He speaks with authority, unlike anyone else. And while he's teaching, the crowd just keeps growing and swelling to the point that you don't even notice the narrative, the story that's going on in the outer rings of the circle. There's a paralyzed guy with a couple of his friends, and they're trying to get to see Jesus. Excuse me, can we see Jesus? And kind of like trying to watch the World Cup at Power and Light. <laughs> no one's budging, and the entrances are blocked. And so after a while, you think that maybe they just gave up and they went home. And then suddenly, the roof next to Jesus starts getting pulled up. And who pops down <laughs> with, with ropes and hands helping him down but the paralyzed guy? You're amazed kind of at the diligence of his friends that they would go through anything to get their friend to Jesus, even causing damage to someone's home. Do you imagine that homeowner hoping, you know, that acts of God are actually covered in his, <laughs> his insurance policy? Um, and so you watch as they finally bring this paralyzed guy and he, they lay him at Jesus' feet. The rest, everybody's looking. You know, they're on tippy toes, looking between heads and bodies, trying to figure out what Jesus is going to do next. <laughs> and Jesus looks down into this man's tired eyes, and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, could you imagine the paralyzed guy? Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's really great, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'd, you know what I'd love to? I'd love to give you a hug right now out of grati gratitude. I don't know if you saw, but there were a couple guys who brought me here, if you, you know, or, and it's probably as astounded as the paralyzed guy's face was. The people to watch are really the teachers, these teachers of the law. 
because you could tell just the look on their face. They got ticked real quick. You know, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards where God says that he's the only one who has the right to forgive sins from his house, the temple, through his altar, through sacrifice. You can almost imagine their thoughts. Does this guy know Torah? Does he know the Bible at all? I mean, who does he think he is? He's presuming to act as if he's God. This guy's just as arrogant as everybody says he is. Well, Jesus was always teaching from the scriptures, so he knew what he was doing, and he saw right through these Pharisees' teaching, right through their thoughts. And he says, why are you guys questioning what I'm doing? Let me ask you a different question. What's easier for me to tell this guy your sins are forgiven? Or for me to tell him to rise up and walk, and so that you know that I, the one that the Bible, that the Torah, that the prophets and the writings have been pointing to throughout time, am the Son of Man and have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to do something that's impossible. I'm going to do something that only the Creator God can do. So he comes back to the paralyzed man. And I'm sure this paralyzed guy's thinking, oh boy, you know? <laughs> you just got to see his face like, because all he can do is move his eyes probably at this point. So they're just like going crazy. Um, and he looks down and he says, I say, I say, rise up, grab your mat and go home. Go home. And everyone's eyes get big as this man who you've seen for years in town, paralyzed, immediately gets up. This isn't physical therapy. This isn't special effects. This is instant healing. Dead cells become alive. Lifeless limbs are full of energy. And you can almost imagine what happens next. You know, the guy gets up. He's like feeling his arms and his legs. He tries to grab his mat, you know, his mat and composure and walk out. But he's just so excited. He starts jumping. He starts running. And he's going through town with his mat in hand, waving at his neighbors. The neighbors, you know, overfilling their water jars with shock at this guy who's running, who has been paralyzed for years. And he gets to his home, busts open the door, tears coming down his face. His family runs to him, tears coming down their face in shock, just kisses and tears. No room for words yet. And finally, when the shock wears off, you can almost imagine say, someone saying, but, but, but how? How could this happen? You're, you're walking. Dad, you're walking. Husband. And you could almost imagine, if it were me, adrenaline pumping insane. He couldn't contain the volume. He just says, Jesus! My friends, God's, my family, God's doing something. Maybe he hasn't forgotten us. Maybe, just, just maybe, he's regathering his people, Israel, as he's been talking about from old. Maybe now's the time that all of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. Maybe now is the time where God's going to do his great work for his people. And they glorify God, the text says. But returning to you at the crowd and everyone else, you kind of forgot to breathe. Um, You're so amazed at what Jesus has just done right before you. And there's some guy in the back. Oh, this is nothing. (laughs) Should have seen what he did with the leper yesterday. Um, But for you and everyone else, you're amazed. You weren't expecting Jesus to say or do what he said and did. Questions, you know, begin this small roar around the crowd and they... 
They echo the similar questions of the paralyzed man. One woman asks a man, God is working, but what what do you think that means? A fisherman asks his co-worker, you think this is the Messiah? You think this is the Christ, the promised one, all of our writings and the prophets have been pointing to? You think now is the time? And then there's a little child who says, ah, but he doesn't look like much, you know. (laughs) He's just some carpenter from Nazareth, this little kid. Nobody's going to say anything because it's a kid, you know. But it's amazing. And everybody's shocked at what just happened. When you join everyone, the text says, glorifying God. Everyone except for maybe these teachers of the law, the Pharisees who had challenged Jesus in the first place. But we all know how pride can blind what's right in front of us. And it's at the table where our passage leaves us here in chapter 5, verse 26. In a sense, we're sitting with everyone over barbecue, (laughs) talking about who is this Jesus? Maybe more questions than answers at this point in history. He's maybe different than you ever thought he would be. And yet you're hoping every bit of him is true. Well, it seems this conversation has been going on for millennia with every generation asking afresh, who is Jesus really? In this question, it's absolutely critical we get this question right. Because because how we answer this question, if we get this wrong, our view of God will inevitably become oppressive and regressive rather than liberating and relevant to our lives. If we get this wrong, who is Jesus really our whole understanding of who God is is messed up. Now, we all have expectations when we hear Jesus or hear about Jesus, don't we? We expect Jesus to think, to act, to talk a certain way, not just Christians, all of us. If you're here this morning and you're a skeptic and you've, you're asking all these questions about Jesus and you're like, you know what, I, I just don't really know what I believe about this Jesus guy yet. I, you haven't proved it to me. God hasn't proved it to me, and I'm still kind of curious about this whole church thing. I know about church history, and there's some things in there I don't really like. And for you, Jesus, maybe, he may be just the name you shout when you stub your toe against the bed, which is actually a backhanded compliment. (laughs) Because who remembers a simple carpenter who died a meaningless death, even if it is a swear word, if he was not someone who is absolutely great and who has surpassed 2,100 years of history? Maybe you've been engaged in church for a while. And when you think about Jesus, you think he's got some really great teachings. He's a really great moral example to follow who just kind of got messed up in some politics in first century Israel. Well, these expectations, they aren't a modern phenomenon. Actually, Israel had a lot of expectations too. Jews who are looking for that promised Messiah that all the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are pointing to, they thought... That the Messiah was going to come with military power, throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire. He was going to rebuild the temple to its former glory and reestablish the Davidic monarchy and finally have a flourishing country of Israel again. But what we find when we get to the gospel accounts is that the real Jesus is rarely who we expect, but exactly who we need. The real Jesus is rarely who we expect, but always who we need. And on every page, when Jesus encounters someone, he shocks them. (laughs) Not like rubbing your feet against the carpet shock, but he amazes people. And even though I've known Jesus and known about Jesus for a while, 
his responses still shock me, kind of like a jack-in-the-box every time he pops up. Who he is stuns me a little bit. I mean, thankfully, though, amidst all the perspectives we have in our culture, we aren't isolated to these 10 verses, our short passage, when we think about the history of who this Jesus is. This morning, our passage, it comes from the hand of Luke, a historian, believe it or not. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us why he writes this history down. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, but it'll also be on the screen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, so they saw it, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke, he does his research. He talks with eyewitnesses who encountered the real Jesus, and he puts together this orderly account for us to know who the real historical Jesus is, and really to help this guy named Theophilus, a first century Christian, have historical weight behind his belief. It's not an idea of Jesus, it's a person in history. This isn't the stuff of fairy tales, it's proximate history with primary resources, which is key for any sort of historical writing. When we come to the gospel accounts, we find more than just Jesus' teachings. Jesus didn't just want us to have a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. He wants us to get to know the most unexpected and the greatest person in the world. That's who Luke wants us to see. That's who Jesus wants to see, wants us to see. He wants us to see himself. So when we read through the gospel account of Luke, we're going to be walking through the gospel account of Luke a little bit this morning. We're going to ask the question, who is the real Jesus? And we're going to find that he's rarely who we expect. Actually, three expectations shattering revelations, that's a mouthful, of Jesus are at the core of answering, who is Jesus? And the gospel according to Luke reveals these three. He is the God-man who became a dead man and remains a living man. He is a God-man who became a dead man and remains a living man. You know, at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, something strange happens. You know, sometimes we get so much churchy language, we forget how weird this is. You know, a small-town virgin by the name of Mary is told she's going to have a baby. <laughs> Look, that just doesn't happen, and it hasn't happened since, no matter what Jerry Springer will have you believe. And because it totally changes the way Mary was expecting her life to, plan, to, to pan out, God sends one, one of his messengers to explain this to Mary. The angel Gabriel, he tells her basically, I don't want you to freak out. <laughs> I know you're not married, and I know you're a virgin, but you're preggers, all right? Um, <laughs> you're going to have a child, and you're going to call him Jesus. And in verse uh, 30, 32, he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's right there, actually where we find one of the greatest and most wrestling issues that the church has had over the past 2,100 years. It's the issue that Muslims, Jews, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science have grief with. 
by a lot of the world, Jesus is allowed to be a great prophet. He's allowed to be a pretty insightful teacher. He's, he's allowed to be a great guy, a really cool guy. Hey. You know, kind of a Fonzie. Or even a, a God-like man. He was, just, he was so good. He was almost like God. But who could have expected God himself? A God-man. I mean, this was unthinkable. Nobody was ready for this. I mean, isn't God supposed to be bigger than the universe? How is he contained into one person? You know, and if, if a man, isn't he supposed to be the man upstairs, not the man downstairs having coffee with you? You know, he's supposed to be some old white guy with a beard who's washed his hands of this world years ago. God can't be that close. I mean, he can't become man, can he? he doesn't, he's not powerful to become, powerful enough to become man. He can't be that real, can he? And yet the Christmas story always comes before the cross. And it's the seed out of which the Christian faith grows. As theologian J.I. Packer has said, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Everything else. The incarnation, meaning God became flesh in Jesus, helps us know why in, account, in the account of Luke, angels tell shepherds, Angels tell shepherds to go see a child born in a barn as though it's the best news in the world. I mean, that's not showing up in the KC star. Dude, a baby was born in a barn. Everybody go. Um, It's why wise men traveled the globe to see an infant. It, It brings clarity as to why Jesus has the power to silence raging storms and heal the sick, give sight to the blind, stop chronic seizures. And like we saw in our text this morning, make the lame be able to walk by a mere command and then even presume to forgive sins, which was left to God alone. But so what? (laughs) I mean, who cares if Jesus was God, right? What does it matter? Well, for one, if Jesus was truly fully God and fully man, the one who is the ruler of the universe fully understands you fully understands you experientially and exhaustively. I mean, can you imagine the one who navigates the inner workings of the universe gets the inner workings of your heart better than anyone? Actually, he knows you better than you know yourself. He isn't too far aloof to feel our pain, but he can sympathize with your weakness, your human frailty, your loved loss, your loneliness, your hurt, and your pain. The real Jesus, he's rarely who we expect, but he's exactly who we need. Do you know and want to be known by this God-man? But when you finally, here's the kicker, when you finally start to grasp that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then you almost can't believe he became a dead man, right? Uh, In every one of the gospels, no one is expecting Jesus to die. No one except Jesus, not the crowd, not Mary, not his disciples. And even though it's recorded over and over again that Jesus told them he was, that this crucifixion was coming. If you look in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 22, Jesus tells them, the Son of Man, so he'd already said that earlier in chapter 5 in our story, the Son of Man, which is himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Verse 44 of chapter 9, let these words sink into your ears. (laughs) 
You don't get more bold than that. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then you go to Luke 18, verse 31 through 34. And taking the 12, that's his 12 apostles, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, again, by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't grasp what was said. It was too far outside of people's expectations. And even his disciples couldn't fathom that he was actually going to be killed. It didn't click until after he was dead and they go, oh, that's, that's what he meant. Um, when he said he was going to be killed, he meant he was going to be killed. Ugh. You know, and even how it happens is really surprising. Nobody would have expected this. One of his 12 closest disciples is the one who portrays him. The Pharisees and priests who are supposed to be guardians of God's laws, they break God's laws and hurry the trial under the shadow of night. The Roman, the Roman governor, Pilate, who takes no shame in shedding the blood of Jews, we see this throughout history, for some reason washes his hands of the crucifixion of Jesus. Come on, Pilate, you never have an issue before. Why now? And then throughout, Jesus never tries to defend himself. And then, after undergoing the most excruciating form of death known to man, the God-man, the very inventor of breath, sighs and breathes his last naked and ashamed on a cross before all of Jerusalem. This is what happens when God comes to the world. Did anybody expect that? No. No one. So who cares? He died. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because his death is the only way to give us what we need most. His death is the only way to give us what we need most. Remember earlier in our story, which is, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to heal this man? And for Jesus, healing someone was easy. He created the universe. He even raised dead people. <laughs> giving life to some lifeless legs in a snap. But forgiveness? Forgiveness that, that has the ability to release past guilt, erase our shame, silence any claims of condemnation, and soothe the most restless of hearts? Forgiveness of our sin like that is the most urgent need for humanity. And that's not hyperbole. We talked about this last week how deep the brokenness of sin destroys our hearts, our lives, and our world. But this kind of forgiveness of sin, it cost God everything. It cost God everything. It meant that Jesus had to die for us, to die the death we deserved to die. When we disobeyed, when we rebelled, when we sinned against an infinite God, only an infinite sacrifice would pay that debt in full. And when Jesus, the God-man, went to the cross willingly, he paid it in full. He paid it in full. Paul talks about this in Rome, in Romans, um, when he's writing to a church in Rome. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The real Jesus is rarely who we expect, but he's exactly who we need. 
Have you accepted that forgiveness that's only possible through his death? Well, for three days after Jesus' death, his, his followers are hiding and they're afraid. I mean, can you blame them? They'd left everything to follow him, but for what? To be abandoned now? To be on Rome and Israel's most watched list? That's fun. Um, and no matter how many times I read this, no matter how many times I hear about what Jesus does next, it always, it always surprises me, and I can't get my mind wrapped around it. On a Sunday, some of the women who followed Jesus the closest go to where they expect to find him, where dead people stay dead, you know, the grave. But he's not there. Like reaching in your back pocket to find your wallet and discovering it's not there, the body is gone. The disciples hadn't taken it. Those who opposed Jesus couldn't find it or they would have shown it to everyone to put this lie at rest immediately. And some of the most unexpected news comes out. The astounding reality that Jesus, that he remains alive. He remains a living man. The God-man became a dead man and three days later rose again to remain a living man forever. And he starts meeting with people after his resurrection and the New Testament is full of these eyewitness accounts, history. It's not just an idea. This is recorded history. And people freak out. You know what I mean? I don't know about you, but if some guy died and then rose again and he just like showed up in my living room... Um, certain bodily functions would go crazy. I'm not really good at that type of stuff, you know? So, so when he shows up, people think he's a ghost. But Jesus does the unexpected again, kind of like a second grade boy showing off his scars. He's like, hey, put your hands here, feel this, you know? That's show and tell. And he shows them that he's fully and physically alive. Saying to some he met after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, if you turn a couple more pages... Luke 24, verse 39, he says, For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This wasn't an idea of Jesus. This wasn't just the spirit of Jesus. This is his physical resurrection that the Bible talks about. You can say it's a spiritual resurrection, but just don't say it comes from the Bible. Um, That's fine. (laughs) I don't think it's true, but don't say that the Bible says anything other but than a physical resurrection full resurrection of Jesus Christ. But why does that matter? Okay, we get back to this question. We've been messing with this question. What's the point? How does one's man, one man's resurrection change my life? Well, Jesus himself, after his resurrection, and before he returns to heaven, he's recorded as saying in verse 46 of chapter 24, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses, eyewitnesses, of these things. Why? Why does all this happen? For one, to show us that God had never given up on his world. It is written. is a way of saying God has always been working toward this moment. The moment where he begins to heal his world through one man, the God man who became a dead man and then three, three days later rose again to be the everlasting living man. But he also does this so that those who know this good news of Jesus personally might have the courage to proclaim it the whole world through. Being a witness of these things, 
That's a courageous calling. That's a courageous calling. If, if there was any doubt as to whether Jesus was the God-man or whether his death was sufficient for lasting forgiveness, look in the empty tomb. Look in the empty tomb. It's the final stamp of approval. No one else has done that. Jesus absorbs sin in his very person. And the curse of sin, which is death, has been defeated by Jesus when he stood scarred but resilient before his followers. Who else can say that? And if we return to our story at the very beginning that we find in Luke, those who ask, who does Jesus think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. You may not, but he does. He does. And, you know, you ask the question again, which is easier, to say it or to prove it? By defeating the greatest foe of humanity, death, by paradoxically dying and rising again physically to give birth now to a new movement of people which is this ragtag bunch of fishermen and prostitutes who, when he died, ran scared, but for whatever reason, suddenly had the courage to die for this gospel proclamation that Jesus is alive. Either they're liars, or they're insane, or it really happened. And hundreds of thousands of people have died because they thought it really happened. All this so that we might we might believe in Jesus as desperately as the paralyzed friends, paralyzed man's friends, such that we'll look for every opportunity to bring our friends to Jesus, even if we have to make a way when there seems to be no way. Is this the Jesus you know? He's the originator, the catalyst, the purpose, the goal of this church here at Christ Community Downtown. And he's the purpose, the goal, the catalyst, the originator of every true church in proclaiming the gospel of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Do you have a reckless desire to see him meet your friends? Do you see him as your deepest need, as your friend's deepest need? He's always worth it. Are you willing to rip off the roof for Jesus? Not just raise the roof, but rip it off. The real Jesus, he's rarely who we expect him to be, but he's exactly who we need. Let's pray.